G'day, mate. 40 here. What a time for Donald Trump to have his town hall. All right. So yesterday, all right, he lost the civil case, all right, saying that he sexually assaulted and then libeled this woman. I mean, he, <laughs> he looked really bad in this lawsuit. And yet, and yet, Rich Lowry writes in Politico, why Trump can't lose. He's constructed a political force field against failures and scandals that would have failed any other politician. You notice that everybody exerts a force field. And some people exert, you know, a much more powerful force field than others. So Dennis Prager exerts a very powerful force field. Right, Dennis Prager walks into the room than others. And everyone, you know, takes notice and it affects them. Right, if you exert a powerful force field, has a profound effect on how other people treat you. So somehow there are women who never get sexually harassed. Like people are too intimidated to say anything inappropriate to push her boundaries because you just know this is not someone you can push their boundaries. On the other hand, there are people early on in recovery who are always announcing what their boundaries are. And usually these people are struggling with boundaries. I have struggled with boundaries. When I first started regular psychotherapy in 1998, one of the first things my therapist did was give me a handout on boundaries because I was very careless with how other people violated my boundaries. For example, I got a, a credit card in my name that I gave to a friend because his own credit reports were just so bad that uh, he couldn't qualify for a credit card. So guess what? I get him credit card in my name and he promises to pay me back every month. But does he pay me back every month? No, he does not. And so eventually when he owes me about $500 and he hasn't paid me back, right, I get a little upset and I cancel his credit card and then he gets upset and he doesn't pay me back the $500 and it put, you know, kind of a, kind of a blow to, to our friendship. So then I would violate other people's boundaries. I was a little too aggressive verbally, sometimes, God forbid, physically. I remember once I was at a Friday night Shabbat dinner, uh, gosh, 25 years ago, and I started talking to this woman in the kitchen, and, and she remembers I kind of backed her into a corner. And eight years later, when she recounted the story, she'd have uh, tears in her eyes. It was that, it was that traumatic. And so I remember once I stayed with someone in 1994 and I made a handful of long distance phone calls, you know, fairly brief, but I didn't ask his permission first. All right. I was careless uh, about boundaries. So Donald Trump, all right, he's got this force field and somehow he just keeps, <laughs> he just keeps on trucking. All right. You'd think, you'd think, that, uh, you know, all the setbacks he's had over the past few months, that he'd be going down in the polls, but now he's going up in the polls. Like, no matter what happens, nothing seems to hurt him. And the verdict against Trump in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, it, it looks like it could just be added to the list. I mean, does this, does this guy ever, ever lose? So, yeah, Tucker Carlson's back, but not for long. That's uh, Richard Spencer's perspective. Hello again. This is Richard, and this is another entry in my journal. I'm going to talk once again about Tucker Carlson. So 
Tucker has made news once again. He's back. <laughs> We're back was, in fact, the tweet that he released this afternoon, and he included a video in which he recited yet more platitudes on about how the media just isn't fair and you're not getting the truth and things like that. Um, he did say some true things, to be fair, about the media selecting facts to report on and so on. And uh, the fact that Twitter as a platform is reactionary. It's, it's simply commenting on the news that is relayed to people via uh, cable news in many cases. All true. And he also announced that he will be continuing his show. That seems to be what he implied, is that he will have a show much like he did for the last four or so years on Fox News. But he will be doing it on a new platform, Twitter. I thought that Twitter had hired him as talent, much like Rumble hired Steven Crowder and Substack paid Matt Taibbi or something like that. But apparently that isn't quite the case. So Elon Musk tweeted a, um, a few minutes or, or so afterwards saying that there is no contract with Tucker. So he is using the Twitter platform just like anyone else will. And he could get subscribers and monetization and so on. So that's interesting. So Twitter isn't quite becoming a content yeah, it's interesting how quick Elon Musk was to back away and to emphasize that he's not doing anything special with Tucker. He hasn't made any special deal with Tucker. Right? Initially, it seemed like Tucker and Elon were just combining th their resources and you know going to war together. And then Elon Musk, <laughs> he, what, did he pants Tucker? Because initially it sure sounded like Tucker had some sweet special deal with Elon Musk, turns out he's just got the same deal that you and me have. Is it? Yeah, same deal that me have. That you and I have. Sorry. Producer, as I thought they might, a publisher. They are remaining a platform, but there's no doubt that there were some, I don't know, texts exchanged or some behind the scenes dealings between Elon and Tucker. Uh, but regardless, he will be on the platform and acts like a acts like any other creator. And I think that's really his ultimate problem. <laughs> and I don't think Tucker will go very far with this, and I think he will increasingly fade into irrelevancy, at least with regard to where he was previously. Now, of course, I'm sure he can produce a lot of shows. I'm sure these can be successful, but I don't think he will ever be the figure that he once was, and I'll explain that a little bit later. Now, Tucker also did some things today. He made some news in some other ways, and he is threatening a lawsuit against Fox News. He is claiming a couple of things, some of which I think are accurate, some of which I think are a bit dubious. Uh, what is accurate is that Fox is, in effect, in breach of its contract by posting videos that are meant to demean him. And it, it does seem likely, I don't know for sure, but it seems likely that Fox News was the one who leaked some text messages that might have uh, gone to trial. I think they were actually suppressed from the trial, but... Uh, Anyway, some text messages, and this is um, these include the that's not how white men fight line in which Tucker expressed those sentiments, but then also expressed how the fact that, you know, rooting on white people vis-a-vis -vis Antifa is actually soul-destroying on some level. Um, Fox News is likely behind the leaks of some of these behind-the-scenes videos of Tucker just being very casual, maybe being a bit blunt or crass on occasion, but not really doing anything all too terrible in my mind. In fact, those other videos he leaked made him seem, I don't know, relatable or cool or something. Perhaps you should thank Fox News. The other thing that he claimed that I find, a, I find pretty dubious, to be honest, is that firing Tucker was part of the Dominion lawsuit. So there was some agreement, I don't know if it was on paper or not, that 
for Fox News to pay Dominion uh, three quarters of a billion dollars, but then not fully admit wrongdoing, which they didn't. They didn't come out and flatly say it was all a lie. We knew it was a lie and we recklessly and maliciously spread a lie. It, Fox News did not say that, even though that was implied, I guess, by their massive settlement with Dominion. Um, Tucker claims that someone on the board told him that he was fired as part of the settlement. Now, uh, I'm not sure I believe this. It, it, I'm wondering if this were, I don't know. I just don't fully believe that something like that took place. Now, it does raise the question of why exactly was Tucker filed, I, fired. I think there are many different reasons, um, some of which might have been the, you know, that's not how white men fight um, uh, text, uh, some of which might might be um, in, uh, might be related to uh, Rupert Murdoch's calling off his marriage with, uh, I don't know, which is his third, fourth, fifth wife, <laughs> one of those, uh, because she was a little bit too Christian-y for his taste, a little bit too wacky, and she was making claims like Tucker Carlson is a sent from God or a Messiah. I mean, that's absolutely hilarious that uh, Rupert Murdoch canceled his, his forthcoming nuptials with this woman and then takes away her favorite TV show. I have some kind. Uh, it was probably a combination of different factors. I'm just not sure I believe that Dominion forced him out and that was part of the settlement. I find that dubious, but we'll find out. There's also the issue of, is Tucker also breaking the contract? Now, Tucker could say Fox broke it first, but is Tucker also breaking the contract by starting a new program? Well, you know, is being a content creator on social media, is, is, that, is that something that was in the contract? I don't know. It might have been. Tucker. I mean, does Fox really want to get dragged through Discovery? where all the text messages and emails of their executives get uh, you know, brought into the public eye. I, I don't think Fox wants to go through that again. I, I can't imagine that Fox has a strong case against Tucker. Would go on other people's podcasts, but he wasn't actively making content. He didn't have... So anyway, Rich's main point here is that Tucker's second act will be his slide into irrelevancy. So I don't think so. I think Tucker Carlson's at the absolute height of his powers, and I'm not endorsing him. I think he's a, a demagogue. I think he's frequently irresponsible. I think he doesn't care about w whether or not what he's saying is, is true. So I think uh, there are many valid criticisms of Tucker, and also he is tremendously entertaining and hilarious. His own podcast today. So we'll see. Uh, regardless, uh, I, you know, I think non-compete clauses are... Uh, I guess understandable from a corporation's perspective, but uh, not, not something I'm too fond of. I hope Tucker, you know, is a citizen. He can go out there and speak his truth. But I ultimately don't think he will be terribly successful at this. And I, I think people who claim that he is going to be, you know, bigger than ever and this will free him and all that kind of stuff, I, I think those people are a bit delusional and they misunderstand the dynamic at place. And in a way, they misunderstand why they themselves liked Tucker. So let me explain. I am fond of using the phrase, a feature, not a bug. <laughs> and I, I invented that phrase. <laughs> That's probably what Trump would say. No, I didn't invent it, but I'm fond of using it. And, you know, I, I use it in particular with Trump, where, you know, a lot of liberal types will look at something like, say, the Alvin Bragg um, lawsuit in New York over hush money pay payments and say, like, oh, well, no one could vote for him knowing that he's indicted on uh, both misdemeanors and criminal charges. Well, they, that, that kind of 
a, a, a criminal charge like that, Trump being arraigned, it's kind of a feature and not a bug of the whole Trump movement in the sense that he can flip that around and say, no, this is part of the, this is part of the great witch hunt against me. They all hate me. They went. Well, <laughs> the, this case really does seem like a witch hunt against Donald Trump. So looking at Twitter, statute of limitations, sexual assault in New York is typically five to seven years. New York even has a 20 year period for civil claims of sexual assault. But that was not enough to get Donald Trump. So Gene Carroll's claims go back to the mid 1990s. So New York in 2022 amended the law to provide an unlimited statute of limitations for civil claims of sexual assault and provided a one year window where pre-existing claims could be litigated. That's where Jean Carroll comes in, and her lawsuit was funded by a Democratic activist who filed her claim against Trump in that limited window. Even a liberal New York jury wouldn't find Trump liable for rape. People paying attention know what this is truly is, another political attack to try to harm Trump before the 2024 election. That seems pretty accurate analysis. To destroy your favorite president, all that kind of stuff. So in a way, the bug is the feature. And you can go, I think this phrase fits Trump to a T uh, for almost everything about him. He was popular because he was vulgar, not despite it. He was popular because he wasn't a politician with an agenda, but because he was actually a reality show star who would go on worldwide wrestling events and make a jackass of himself. All of those bugs were, in fact, features. So that's what I mean by a phrase like this. And so why am I using that phrase vis-a-vis Tucker and Fox? So Fox News has a lot of problems. And in fact, you can look at it and say that it is a dying business that is going to be sunset within, say, my lifetime. It's probably going to be around another 25 years, but its ultimate business model is not sustainable. People are moving away from cable in general. They are cutting the cord. They're not necessarily even saving money, (laughs) but they are moving to Netflix, to HBO Max, to Yeah, well, people want something more relatable, something more intimate, something more daring, something that tells more truth, something that's not as stiff, something that's not as narrow, something that has, you know, a little broader range of expression and and debate. So, yeah, I I don't know why anyone would watch, you know, Fox News when, when you've got much more intelligent material, you know, online such as this show, YouTube, uh, et cetera. They're getting on-demand content or subscription-based content from the web. Surely you've heard (laughs) about this trend as it is massive. Fox is live television. Now, Fox has made little forays into Fox Nation and things like that. According to Tucker, those weren't particularly successful. And so you have this ancient audience that is still watching Fox News. And it's a very real thing. I mean, I, I remember going... Look, why are we here? All right, are we here as a substitute for having a life? Or are we here to supplement what's already an exciting, successful, uh, vibrant, diverse, uh, thrilling, connected, intimate, moving, you know, fully human in the best sense life? So I think for many people, the internet, uh, live streams, talk radio, that these serve as a supplement to their real life. It's an opportunity to have some fun, to connect with people with common interests, to learn some things, and it's just a healthy supplement to a life well-lived. Then for other people, it's an opportunity to substitute for normal human connection. 
And of course, this is a poor sub substitute for normal human connection. So if you use live streams, YouTube, talk radio, the internet as a supplement to real life connection, then that's a wonderful thing. If you're using it as a substitute, not such a great thing. So let's get a little bit of uh, perspective on it from a psychologist here, Alan Berger. Well, self is this self that we've developed thinking that that was somehow going to be our solution in life. And that false self tends to take three different paths. Okay, so I got frustrated with who I was, and I kind of wanted to flush who I was down the toilet and build a new self, I guess you could call it a false self, and construct something great with my accomplishments. Then I got really sick at age 22. I wasn't able to accomplish anything anymore. So I wanted to accomplish something great by connecting with Dennis Prego, by connecting with Judaism, by devoting my life to God. But both of those were kind of fleeing who I really am. And so I can do this YouTube show as a supplement to a, a vibrant and diverse connected life, or I can try to use these live streams as a substitute for having a life. I can do these streams to construct a false self or to build and develop and enhance my real self. Um, and each of these paths, and this was Dr. Karen Horney's work, are related to a certain appeal. So the, there are three things that the path appeals to that we take, or the three different paths and the, the things they appeal to is the appeal of mastery, the appeal of love, or the appeal of freedom. And so early on in our life, when we're... Yeah, so initially I tried to construct my false self on mastery. I was going to become great. Then I got sick, so I tried to construct my false self on love, you know, love of Judaism, and that didn't really work out because wherever I went, there I was. We're trying to, to solve our basic anxiety that we're not going to be loved, we're not going to be accepted, we're not going to belong. Well, we choose one of these general pathways as our solution. Every one of us has a bit of, of all of these in us that are part of just who we are, and we'll talk about that more, but one becomes our dominant solution. So let's talk about the appeal of mastery. So if I take the appeal of mastery, I think the way I'm going to be loved and accepted is by being the best at everything I do. And it's not just the best, but it turns into I'm going to be perfect. And so I'm going to be the, get the best grade in, in, in class, right? I'm going to do the best on it. If, if, it, I, if my pursuit is athleticism, I'm going to be the best athlete. I'll be the best tennis player. I'll be the best student. I'll be the best child in the family. I'll be better than all my other siblings, right? I am going to be best. And if I'm best, then I'm going to ensure my love. I'm going to ensure that I'm going to be accepted and I'm going to ensure that I belong in the world. Now, and the second path is this appeal of love. If someone just loves me, I'll be okay. So this path is about. This, this, this speaks to me. This is what I experienced. This is how I understand what I experienced. I initially wanted to create this false self based on accomplishment and mastery. That didn't work out. Then I tried to build my false self on you know, romantic and erotic adventures and adventures in Torah. He, he's, he's singing my song. He's telling my story. Totally erasing yourself because to be loved when you're pursuing this appeal of freedom means that you have to meet every need that your partner has in order for them to love you. And so I would inevitably put way too much, way too much weight on all of my relationships. All right. Because that's where I was getting my meaning in life. Didn't work out. And Dr. Karen Horn, I called it the self-effacing solution. 
because you're put you're throwing yourself away you're erasing yourself and saying i'll be whatever you want me to be i'll be your genie in the bottle baby just rub me just love me i'll do whatever whatever you want me to do so there's a total abdication of your own personal needs and there's a what a total for focus on the other person's needs now you can see as we go through these things the appeal of mastery well certain parts of you we're going to call them essential parts to the to achieving that particular appeal are going to be emphasized in your person so the appeal of mastery is your intelligence right you're going to really rely on your intelligence or if you're an athlete your physical skills that's what's going to be pushed forward your confidence i'm the best at what i do what's going to happen to the part of you that's doubting you're going to reject it right if you're pursuing the appeal of mastery any self-doubt you're going to hate yourself for that you can't have any doubt not if you're going to be the best now, if you're going to take this appeal of love, right, and you pursue that particular thing, then all the parts of you that are responsive, that are interested in other people, that show empathy for them, that, that will mobilize yourself to meet your needs, all those are going to, be, going to be emphasized and become essential parts of your personality. The parts of you that are going to want to speak up for yourself and be assertive and express your own needs, what are you going to feel about that? You're not going to do that because then you risk. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would be afraid to assert myself because I didn't want to rock the boat, lose the relationship. So uh, one friend said, you, you seem to have all the characteristics of like a, a beaten, you know, a beaten house husband. You, know, you just allow these women to just walk right over you. Because I was getting my meaning and purpose and sustenance in life from my romantic and erotic adventures. Guess what? Not being loved. So our personality is going to be very much shaped by which of these paths we go on. So we talked about one was the appeal of mastery the appeal of love. The third one is the appeal of freedom. We just don't want to be bogged down with anything. So what we have to do is develop an attitude of being needless and wantless. We give up on life, we resign, and that's at the basis of this one, to have any kinds of needs or aspirations, whatever. We're willing to go through life and just get by. We're not going to get too upset about anything. We're not going to feel anything. We're not going to get too invested in anything. It's, it's the classic person. It's the classic person that, that has you know, thrown in the towel, right? That they just go through life. They're the classic underachiever. They have so much more potential than that, but they're not. Right. They are the classic under earner, underachiever, hiding their talents. They've given up on life. They're going to mobilize themselves to do it because that means they're going to get invested. And what do they risk? Being hurt, being disappointed, being frustrated. Right. To, to achieve, to succeed and to prosper, you have to be willing to bring your soul out of hiding. So that's what we're about on this show. We're about bringing souls out of hiding. See, so if you have the appeal of freedom, you're not going to want to feel anything. You're going to want just life to be okay all the time. You're not looking for great. You're just looking for okay. Life is just going to be okay. I'll settle for okay. As long as it's okay, I'm fine. So that person will not have any aspirations. So what will they do? What parts of themselves will they throw away? They'll throw away any part that has any need or want whatsoever. Any part that's going to attach or be interested in anything is going to be thrown out the window. So that's what we did early on in our life. Now we did that to do what? To ensure we're gonna be loved and accepted. I changed myself to manipulate you to get you to feel a certain way because when this happened, I was so dependent on how other people felt about me to be okay. This happened in our childhood. Right, so if you don't have a strong sense of self, you, you're twist in the winds of, of live streaming. You know how tempting it is to try to say what the audience wants to hear, right? That's audience capture. You know how difficult it is to stand up and say things that everybody you know in the chat is rejecting denying making fun of you know how difficult it is to you know stand for what you believe is right and true if you're getting so much of your meaning and sustenance in life from you know developing a crowd developing an audience and telling it what it wants to hear 
thought about the turning last time. We're turning away from the false self. We're turning towards the true self. You know, we're making this commitment to a new way of life. So here's the charge again. But once again, a commitment. So each step, you know, starts a charge. The next step satisfies. So third step, we turn our life over to God. Fourth step, we satisfy that by making a complete and thorough moral inventory. Without some kind of a manifestation of action becomes just an empty promise. And we're all familiar with empty promises. How many times I say, I'll stop drinking. This is it. I've had it. I'm not going to drink again. I'm not going to use again. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. You know, our lives have been filled with these empty promises. And until we somehow mobilize ourselves to take a specific action, then we are not going to be able to discover this new way of life. Now, step four is that invitation, right? We made a, you know, a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. So I want to start by talking about that this is the first tangible evidence that we are going to have of our commitment to discovering a new possibility in our life. And it's tangible because now we're really being asked to do something. The other steps that we've just made a decision, right? We came to believe, you know, we admit it. Those are things that we've done. Now we're asked to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves and to sit down and put pen to paper and really get honest with ourselves like we've never been honest before. This is the way that this step is described in the big book. He goes, Bill, this is Bill's writing, of course. Now we launched out on a course of vigorous action. The first step, which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us have never attempted. Though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us. Right, so the most noble goals, the most sublime philosophies and theologies Right, the most rigorous religious commitments don't mean anything unless you start cleaning house, coming to terms with the damage that you've done, you know, taking a long, hard look at how your selfishness has hurt other people, and beginning to clean up the wreckage of the past by making amends to the people you've harmed. That's Bill's word, that have been blocking us. We're going to see that one of the things that we need to face that's been blocking us in terms of the uh, achieving emotional sobriety is our emotional dependency. That's what's been blocking us from being able to step, stand on our own two feet, from being able to. Right. And so if you're doing live streams and you're emotionally dependent, all right, it's going to compromise your, your commitment to truth, to whatever you believe is good, whatever you're trying to do, because you're going to be so desperate you know, for that emotional sustenance from your audience. To finally mature in life. So we need to have a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. So we had to get down to causes and conditions. So that's what we're facing in this step. We're facing causes and conditions. And before we talk about how we're going to face those things, I want to spend some time now discussing our resistance to working these steps. Because that has to be addressed. You cannot work these steps without becoming aware of the part of you that doesn't want to work them. We're asked to make a searching and fearless moral inventory, searching and fearless. How come the word fearless has been inserted in this step? Why didn't we just say a searching moral inventory? What is this fearless? How come we have to be courageous in this effort? Well, this is what we're up against. And, and this is a very important thing to become aware of. We have to be fearless because we are going to now have a stark confrontation with our false self. Now, as we've discussed it before, our false self is based on a tyranny of the shoulds. It's an idealized self. It says, this is the way, this is the blueprint of who I have to be to be okay. And in that blueprint are all of these demands about how I'm supposed to be. And this is an idealized self. So this means if I'm this way, absolutely this way, I'll be okay. Right. So you see people going online with their e-personality, you know, creating this false self, trying to you know, be a keyboard warrior or, you know, live streaming star, be all sorts of things that they're not. 
right so you can come to live streaming from a position of you know vulnerability and frustration with your real life from failure in your real life and inability to connect in your real life like a series of dissatisfactions and failures and humiliations right and then you can try to you know create this you know brand new e-personality who is just you know so tough talking and if i'm anything less than this i'm not so when i adhere to the demands that this blueprint of my false self have created, then I feel a false pride. Look at who I am. I'm great. I'm perfect. When I'm not is the important thing here. And this is where the fearless comes in. When I am not who I should be, it unleashes self-hate. It unleashes the experience of what we call the despise. Right. So you, you sense with many people on YouTube and live streamers and podcasters, you just sense the intense self-hatred that they must feel because they're perpetuating this, this false e-personality. self. I now see parts of myself that I can't tolerate, that I hate. I'm not supposed to be this way, and God forbid anybody sees them, they're not going to love me. I'm not going to belong. I'm not going to be okay. The basic anxiety that was resolved when we adopted this blueprint to this false self is now going to be re-experienced in our working step four. We are going to confront our despised self. We are going to see ourselves in a way that we haven't wanted to. You know, every one of us has, is guilty of selective inattention. We only see the things that we want to see. We don't see who we really are. We see ourselves in our idealized image. And that's a serious problem because as soon as you see these other parts of you that aren't okay, you're going to hate yourself. And when someone's despised self becomes all that they can see, when they have no hope, that they can be their, their false self, that's when people decide to kill themselves. We call it the anti-self, gets so big and so strong and that, that they despise themselves to such a degree, the conclusion is the world would be better off without me. And this is the only way my pain is gonna stop. So confronting this despised self is such an important part of this experience, which is why Bill called us to be fear, fearless. If we stop, if we don't confront this despise self in this journey that we're taking, we are not going to be able to be rigorously honest. Now it helps if what you understand when you're confronting this is that the false self, this despise self is just a creation. It's a, it's a construction of the false self. It's not really, it's, you know, that's where it's, that there's this other part of it. A lot of the ideas of who I'm supposed to be and who I'm not, it's a big lie. It's based on a myth that only certain things are okay for me to be. When all of me is okay to be, I'm a human comma being. So we're being confronted now with, with that, with this existential reality of who we are. And a little another point that said, from you know, we go back in the past to learn as much as we can from it. And then we get the hell out of there. What he didn't include on his button, we get the hell out of here and we get grounded in right now. And we lose and we use all that we've learned from the past to live a different experience right now, right here, right now. That's where recovery shows up in what you're doing today. You do not have to ask someone if they're in recovery or not. You can just watch their behavior. And if they are living, if they are living their recovery, you will see it in what they're doing, not what they're saying. Herb Kagan said that there was an old Catholic saint that used to say, everywhere I go, I preach the gospel. And sometimes I use words, right? I love that line. I love that. Everywhere I go, I preach the gospel. Sometimes I use words because it's not the words that communicate what's going on. It's who we are. It's how we live our life. And that's what step 10 is about. Now we're taking everything we've learned and we're plugging it in in order to learn how to deal with ourselves when we get upset and disturbed. 
And what we do now is we're not blaming anybody else. We continue to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. We take care of it right now, right here, right now. Promptly admitted it right at this moment. Now, when, are, when do we know we're wrong? Well, Bill had a, had a clue for that. If you read the 12 and 12 in step 10, he says, it's a spiritual axiom. Every time I am emotionally disturbed, there's something wrong with me, no matter the cause. Okay, let me fast forward here. An amazing dialogue that uh, he does here. <laughs> we're talking about this emotional sobriety form. I asked you guys to fill them out. I said, does anybody want to volunteer and talk about what they put on their form? And you put your hand up. And so here we are now in front of all your colleagues. I mean, uh, you know, there's 300 social workers out here. That's it? That's it's just 300. It probably feels like a lot more than that right now. But, you know, what I want to acknowledge, first of all, look, it takes a lot of courage for you to come up because I imagine this is going to get pretty personal. So what, as you know, that first column is what is it, what's the event that upset you? What happened? My wife just won't do the dishes. She won't do the dishes. Mm -hmm. Tell me what. I mean, it's not really, that sounds No, really it's simple, petty, but, but it's, uh, there's more to it. I know that. Okay, so, look, I work a lot, all right? And right. she doesn't work right now. We have a six-month-old daughter. Mm -hmm. And I ask that when I come home. I mean, I'm talking like I, if you add up the commute that I do to go to work because right. of where we live, right? I work probably about 11, 12 hours a day. So I come home, and there's dishes in the sink. Who's fucking doing them? Right. Me. <sighs> and all I ask that she does throughout the day. I mean, I'm talking like okay, I pay the bills. Her. She can do whatever Welcome. she wants. What's and I just, oh, blessings. Blessings. <laughs> hey, look, I just add a quick, quick question. Um, is you've heard of the book of miracles yes marianne williamson is it yeah now is that related to aa or are these separate things entirely uh, no, i'm sorry the course in miracles a course in, course miracles. in miracles yeah it's I, i'm not aware of any connection that them that may be one but i'm not aware of any okay all right uh because I, I came across a copy of that for my travels as a book dealer, and I thought about uh, reading it, but I haven't done it yet. Um, but I think there's some even overlap. The ideas are very similar. You know, the whole idea space of, of uh, you know, cleaning up your house, surrendering your bad self, you know, that whole thing. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's also done very anonymously, right? I don't think there's an actual author attributed to A Course in Miracles. It's just sort of presented as if unauthored from some sort of foundation, which I uh, think is similar to how AA is presented. Well, I mean, Bill Wilson wrote the, the big book of AA. I mean, that's pretty pretty well known. Oh, okay. So, but they don't say, you know. So this is a book by Helen Schuchman. The, the underlying premise is the greatest miracle is the act of gaining a full awareness of love's presence in a person's life. And this book was dictated to her by Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, but you have no personal experience with it. I, I do. My, uh, I, I live with a woman who was suicidal and... <laughs> And she took this course, and she was highly skeptical of it, but she knew that she she needed to make some changes, and so she needed to get out of the house, and so she took this course. Um, seems okay. just very Christian to me. It's not it's not something I resonate with. Okay. All right. Well, I thought it was 
worth discussing. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm just worth inquiring about. But uh, it's all over. Like addiction, addiction, addiction is all over. Like every, seems like everybody I know and talk to is dealing with them some form of addiction or another. It's kind of a, it's kind of depressing in a way. Um, you see, Ralph. Ralph is uh, Ralph is on the mend theoretically. You've been following this. No, what's going on with Ethan Ralph? Well, he's supposedly he's trying to kick um, Xanax and all of his chemical issues. And he's trying to lose some weight, according to him. Uh, but, you know, his wife left him. Hmm. Have you been following the drama? No. No. Yeah, I guess his wife and their, their infant... She she ran off. He, Ralph moved to Mexico. He started started moving to Mexico because I guess the cost of living is a lot cheaper, and possibly way to dodge legal troubles here in the states. Uh, so he he up and left for Mexico with his wife and daughter, and was streaming from there uh, for a good number of months, and then everything sort of seemed to have gone south a couple of weeks ago. And she left him. So the wife took the infant daughter back to the States and left Ralph all alone in Mexico. And so this was a, a quite a blow to Ralph. And Ralph has seen to taking this response from the world as a cue to uh, start cleaning up his act a bit. Uh, so I followed this politics. Uh, I'm losing you. Is are you? Doing oh, I'm in the again? park. Yeah, is that a back okay. connection? Oh, yeah, no, it's better now. It's better now. Oh. But you're just uh, wandering off. So, so, as as an outsider to the twelve steps, do you find all this addiction talk? You find it depressing, off-putting. Um, how else? How else do you experience all this stuff? Oh, that's a good question because I used to uh, experience it very negatively because the people, like, you know, in my early 20s, there was a considerable number of people I knew they were doing some form of AA and they were incredibly annoying about it, you know? It was the feeling they wanted to talk <laughs> yes. to and they wanted to loop me into it and always accusing me of being in denial and all this kind of stuff. So there's a certain... Uh, annoyance factor that accompanied it um and so i had a negative view of it that's crazy but why would it. anyone why would anyone think that you're an alcoholic well this the point is I, at that period i wasn't even drinking at all i was completely abstemious in those days uh, so but you know everyone was talking about their issues and and their need for space and talking about their needs and i need this and, uh, you know, there was this sort of stilted therapy language that accompanied them. And, you know, it, it was it was like a, a lead balloon. Anytime anybody that was in recovery of some kind, you couldn't talk about alcohol, you know, because that was triggering to them. And there was this, it just, this giant obstacle. It just made me think that everybody was messed up. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. Uh, but I guess it's done some good for some people, you know, and you seem to swear by it. And I, um, 
that I know a lot of people that go to it, but they take it as a joke. You know, they don't take it seriously and they get no results from it. So I know this one guy, he used to go to uh, AA meetings and then just go drink with everybody that he met at AA, you know, it was completely (laughs) farcical, you know, and you know, so you know, it's nothing to. It's not, that's that was his problem, not necessarily AA's. But um, I think anything that pushes you towards like a good moral inventory has got to be positive. So I, 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 I'm a fan now, I guess. So, so overall, the net effect of twelve steppers in your life has it been positive, negative, or you're not sure? I'm not sure. It's mixed. Yeah, it's mixed. Um, uh, you know, it always comes to the person, you know, if somebody's sincere about it, I think it can get to results. If someone's insincere about it, you know, they're not going to get results. There's no magic bullet and there's no dodging the hard work. And I think only a certain percentage of people are willing to do the hard work. And or you... they, you know, hmm? now go ahead. Well, and I think, and I to sort of dovetail into what you say a lot. I think if people have a network of people that care about them and they care about, that is going to sort of decide whether or not they have the resolve to take it seriously. If they have their family or their friends, their, you know, who they're associated with, if they don't have strong bonds with them, they're not going to be as incentivized and they're not going to take it as seriously. Yeah. And uh, do you do you have rules for life? Have you been composing your Elliot Blatt's rules for life? Maybe a pamphlet, hey. if not a full book. Yeah, I have a lot of rules for life. Um, Eat, love, pray. So one is never a lender or borrower. Be. That's good. You know, that's from Shakespeare, bro. I'm, I'm a literate bro, dude. Uh, yeah. So financial probity. And conservatism is one cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone, as I mentioned last time, is hard work. Um, third, it would be choose your associations very meticulously. And don't ignore early warning signs. <laughs> Trust those early warning signs before you commit. That would be one rule, for, a third rule for life. Uh, fourth would, of course, be clean your room. Uh, a fifth and, would be your eat lots toilet. of vegetables. Toilet, what? toilet, clean your toilet, clean your bathroom, clean your kitchen. I assume keep everything clean. Clean it car. all. Clean. clean it all. Yeah, clean it. Clean it all. Okay. I'd rather be cleaning. Why aren't you cleaning right now? You should always be asking yourself. In fact, you know, I got obsessive about cleaning my car in these past couple of weeks. So I got all kinds of like professional products, and I'm like smearing them on the car and cleaning the wheels and the tires and the inside and the outside, the windshield. You know, really taking it a little bit too far, but there's a sort of uh, satisfaction you get about having a clean car. I don't know if you've ever had that. And where does no fap fit into your rules for life? That's where at the bottom, bro. Okay. <laughs> it's a rule. It's more like a suggestion. So how is your selfishness hurting the lives of people around you? Um... um... How is it hurting the lives of people around me? Uh, um, 
I don't perceive myself as selfish, in all honesty. I honestly don't. So I'd be stretching, which isn't to say I'm not selfish. I am, but um, I, I don't know. Selfishness can be a judgment other people, other selfish people place on you when they're trying to manipulate you, right? Do you agree? Sure. So, you know, I don't know how, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't, it sounds, you know, conceited to say, but I don't really think I'm that selfish of a person. So, um, uh, but yeah, I have been selfish and, you know, I mean, I think, I think I have the right balance between self-interest and uh, group interest, bro. Great. Great. I, I mean, you know, obviously, obviously there's going to be people out there that think otherwise, but um, they often, you know, are pretty selfish themselves. You, you, you know what I mean by that? Like, someone can call you selfish as a way of getting them to do something for you, getting you to do something for them. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so I'm very, you know, I've been, I've been bullied by that a lot in my life and I've made a lot of poor decisions because of that type of influence. And so I have a lot of defensiveness around that charge. So, which is not to say it's not worth reflecting on. It definitely is. And I got terrible allergies. So where do, where do you where do you get your your power to do the the right things the tough things the hard things the challenging things where do you get the power to do the tough things um uh, where do i get my power so i mean beyond the obvious well, what's the obvious? Fresh air, sunshine. And, oh, fresh air, sunshine, you know, vegetables, salads. You know, salads, cotton sheets, you know, the basics. The basics, yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. It's like you cultivate a philosophy over life. You learn things. You develop a code, a certain standard of conduct for yourself that you feel that you shouldn't fall beneath. And you sort of live up to your own standards for yourself. So... You know, I guess that's where I get my quote unquote power, right? Yeah. You're, you're if, I under, if, I, I'm not, if I'm understanding your question correctly, yes. um, you know, uh, like the best quote, one of the best quotes I ever read, most impactful quotes I ever read, was like one of the Chinese classics. And it says something like the life is alternating periods of action and reflection, right? Mm-hmm. And which just seems simple enough, but both can be taken to extremes. If you don't have enough of one or the other, uh, you'll suffer. So your reflection needs to be fed by your actions and your reflection upon your actions. And then your future actions need to be, you know, fed determined by your reflections about your previous actions so i just sort of see life as a uh, an experiment with trying to balance reflection and action 
And as silly as it says, and as simple as it says, it's, it actually works. It just works for me, or it has worked for me to, to a certain extent. And what's your, what's your latest kick? Um, auto repair, Luke. I'm, I'm learning how to do basic repairs on my car, in addition to washing my car. That's very so, masculine, bro. Oh yeah, bro. It's a it's a rush. It's a rush. You know, I, I'm no. You know, I got like the socket set. Uh, next thing I'm gonna get is a jack. I'm gonna be able to jack up my car and start doing stuff. Uh oh. Uh oh. Police action in the park. Did oh. you hear that? Uh no, but uh, uh, that's exciting. Thin, thin thin blue line, bro. Yeah, yeah. I love we love our cops and law enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> it's happening right before yeah so that's my latest kick is uh I, i'm just trying to take care of the things in my life that i like and one of them which is my car luke and i every time that warning light comes on i feel like i've been negligent you know so i'm trying to overcompensate by taking preventive maintenance doing things before problems arise really like taking command of my transportation needs Mastering That's your domain. Mastering, mastering your domain. domain. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And my book business, Luke, it's thriving. I'm becoming, uh, I'm going to be in the 1% pretty soon if this keeps up. Fantastic. So I'm really thrilled with myself here. I did, I like, you know, like, I had a long-term project. I said, I'm going to chip away at this, you know, day by day, little by little, and just sort of, you know, create a separate income stream for myself and this has been a source of peace of mind for me you know i don't feel as though i'm completely dependent on the winds of silicon valley bank and things like that and do you still have your your millions in silicon valley bank no i got them out just in time bro oh, thank God. you know i was like the last one in you know i came in there with a wheelbarrow Load it up, bro. I'm getting out of here. So wow. I don't know. So anyway, Richard, I don't know. I, he's really getting on my nerves. I'm gonna pull the plug. I listened to that that piece he played this morning. It just seems like sour grapes. Like Richard is never happy with anybody. <laughs> you ever notice that? He yeah. never <laughs> praises anybody. They're never quite up to snuff in Richard's world. You know, no matter how successful, basically, you know. A galaxy star like Tucker Carlson just doesn't quite cut it to Richard, you know? He's just not on with the Apollo Insomar. He's just, you know, doesn't have quite the right position here or there, you know? It's just such an annoying habit. I just wonder if he's aware of that. <laughs> That's well, how I, he comes off sometimes. I mean, I think it, it makes him entertaining because he's just, you know, he's just going to trash everybody else on the right. Oh. Yeah, and that I'm sure he doesn't even identify the right. He's sort of, sort of at war with the white, with the right, writ large. You know, I, I think he's solidly. But he doesn't identify as a, a liberal either. He's just. Uh, he's he's very slippery. Apollo. Was. Yeah, yeah, and he doesn't quite define what that means, or. I don't know, bro. I, I, I think, uh, I think it's uh, team team Chuck. See how I'm gonna ride. Ride with Team Chuck for a while. See what happens. I don't know what could possibly go wrong. <laughs> what could go wrong?
<laughs> all right, all right, Luke. That's all Blessings. I got. Man. Blessings, that's a quick bro. one. All right, thank you. all right. It's a little you. afternoon delight, bro. Thanks. Uh, I, I'm very appreciative. And I respect that she right. takes care of her child. Sure. Yeah. But just do the dishes. Yeah, they're not my dishes so when they're not done and you walk in what, what happens what do you do then so that's the second column well you walk in i get what's upsetting you now right you, you told her that this is important to me she's not doing it is it all the time she's not doing it or most of the time it's it's most of the time well i'd say it's all the time she only does it if i text her ahead of time and tell her and like my whole point is why do i have to fucking text you ahead of time to tell you to do the fucking dishes that's the second part that upsets you all right i got it so now let's go to that next column so what happens when you walk in you see the dishes aren't done what do you do what's the first thing you do well i've i have two options right i lose my shit which I don't want to, right. which turns into probably me out of the apartment. Right? You mean she put you out of the apartment? Or? Probably. Yeah. It's happened before. Right. Or I just shut off. You shut, how do you which, shut off? What do you do? I just, I sit on the couch. You sit on the couch. And what do you do while you're on the couch? <laughs> what? This is embarrassing. Um, I sit on the couch and I play Angry Birds. Angry Birds? Yeah. Well, how fitting that is, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you're playing Angry Birds. I play Angry Birds. Yeah. Um, and then what happens? You're on the couch playing Angry Birds. Well, I just, I'd fucking shut off, man. I don't, uh-huh. like, so I don't want, she'll say, yeah, because if she, because what she does is she wants to tell me about her day and tell me about the shit, and all I can fucking think about is she didn't do the fucking dishes. Right. So I don't care. You need money for this, you want money for the car insurance, great. Do the fucking dishes, do your part. So you just, you just cut off. You just emotionally that, shut down, <clears throat> distance yourself. Yeah, because the other way doesn't work right now. Right. 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 Well, you're blowing up. And, I, have, and I don't have the control The truth over. is that they're not very dissimilar, right? They're really opposite sides of the same coin. We don't, don't worry about that right now. Okay. We'll get to that some other point. Right. So, so then this is the important thing. So the rule you have, the unenforceable rule is that she, you demand that she does those dishes, right? That's your rule. So would it be some, would this be safe to say? You'd say it this way. If you love me, you would do the dishes. Yeah. If you love yeah. me, you'd do the dishes. Yeah. If you love me, you'd, yeah. you'd yeah. respect some of the, what I, I want I asked one thing, so yeah. One thing, right. right. And you sound like you make it a small thing, because I want to say to you, that's not a small thing. You're asking her a lot. And I'll explain what I mean by that later. And I know that, that like, you're going, what do you mean? What are you talking about? It's just one thing. But no, yeah, it's, like I'm thinking it's, it's a lot. You okay. want her to do the dishes every day, regardless of what's going on in her life. And see, that's what I mean. You're not asking for her a small thing. You're asking her to totally disregard what's important for her and to pay attention to what's important to you. See, that's the rule. Right. Okay. I want, right. I want, well, I want, well, let's go a little farther right. with it, though. Right. See, because so then what you're saying is, is the, the dependency now that you have is that your love for her. And your good feelings for her are dependent on her doing what you want her to do. See, that's what you're setting up here. And so there's no possibility. You're not creating any possibility outside of this demand for her to be connected to you. So you're saying, if we have the relationship on my terms, then we're okay. But if you're not going to meet me on my terms, then hell with you. And you throw her away. I mean, you act like she's throwing you away. But I'll tell you, man, you're throwing well, her away. Well, kind of feels like she is. I, of course you do. Because your demand is that she's supposed to do this. All right, look, here's the real important thing. What do you think makes those dishes so important? What's that really about? What happens when you see those dishes? What is that triggering you, man? That's got to connect to something. Well, okay. Um, my mom, when I, was, when I was a kid, I come home from school and I would judge the night based on if the dishes were in the sink or not. And if they were in the sink, what would happen that night? If dishes were in the sink, it meant that um, my mom was drinking that night. And what was going to happen that night if mom was drinking? Nothing good. What does nothing good mean, Andrew? <sighs> She's fucking angry, man. She was angry. She'd have guys over I've never seen before. Um, I, I didn't eat. She'd come in my room and yell at me. Sometimes you let the guys do stupid shit to me, I guess. Well, you weren't safe if you saw the dishes. Mm. 
in this thing for you. No, no. That somehow when you come home and those dishes aren't done, all of this stuff with your mom is right there again, man. Mm-hmm. See, a lot of times what happens is that we demand that our future reverse the experiences of our past. But it doesn't work that way. See, what we need to do, we could start it right now, but it's going to take a lot of this. You got a lot to say to your mom. We got a lot of stuff to work through with your mom. And that's not going to go away by demanding your wife do the dishes, man. That's going to go away by you opening up a lot of this pain, which is, I see how hard it is for you. I understand that. But when you keep avoiding it, you keep doing these other things, you're not doing yourself, you're not doing your marriage a favor at all. Okay, that's uh, Alan Berger, psychologist, written a lot of books on recovery, about to send an invite over to Duvid. So let me get to that. Hang on. Free Epstein. We know how much Bill Gates cares about children. He met and traveled with Jeffrey Epstein many times after Epstein's The Gates Foundation may be the largest single donor to the dark money machine. Our managers should not treat shareholders' money and the girl should treat shareholders' money. Whoa! Well, that's what we in the speaking business call an early lunch. This guy wasn't just kicked out of the shareholder meeting; he was actually arrested. So, if you're following at home. You fly to Epstein Island, nothing happens to you. You talk about Epstein Island, you end up in cuffs. Coming up. Hiccups, old dad. Okay, don't don't talk about uh, Epstein Island. The Trump town hall on CNN is getting started in five minutes. We'll keep an eye on that, see if there's anything that we should uh, play from the town hall. All right, here is... Richard Spencer on Tucker Carlson's second act. Richard predicts Tucker's second act will be his slide into irrelevancy. To a man's house. It was his ranch out in Texas. And uh, he was one of these right-winger types, and someone connected me with him. This is many years ago, I think 10 or 12 years ago. And it's like, oh, this guy will fund what you're doing. And uh, needless to say, he didn't. Um, we are just going off in completely different directions. I was not doing what he wanted. But anyway, I visited with him, and he's a very wealthy guy. And, you know, Fox News, I can just remember, was was playing in the background throughout this large house. So it was like Fox News was. OK, uh, David, uh, you've uh, been in the chat. Anything that you've seen on the show so far today that you'd like to comment on? Well, the self-improvement, the burger we could talk about, um, you know, I was thinking that watching uh You know, the commenting on the news, and I think, like, you know, my mom, you know, she's getting old, so she's at the point where she writes notes, she writes things down to help her remember. So, like, I do things, and she, you know, I, I like just writes a bunch of notes. I'll come in, and she'll have a bunch of notes, and I'll just do them. Uh, you know, a lot of times they're small things, but uh, you know, just so that she remembers, she writes them down. And then I guess my dad gets home from uh, your work, and uh, so she writes down like you know news stories that she's interested to tell him and uh yeah it's kind of like sports like you're just like commenting and i I was thinking you know, god forbid uh you know, this guy andrew wilson got uh 
strikes on YouTube. So he's got like a backup channel now. I think he's got two strikes and, uh, you know, so he's got a, he was over 10,000 views and he was making maybe even hundreds of dollars of super chats a night. But he was like talking trash and picking fights with other streamers and, uh, you know, got a strike. So now he's got a backup channel and he's just got over a thousand trying to get monetized and, you know, trying to convince people to, uh, you know, donate money to him other ways. And, uh, yeah, I guess he had a little beef with me. So he was on uh, Lucas Gage, and uh, you know, I, I mentioned like we'll call it like the the Destiny model streaming, where you know, like you saw, I got my clip that uh, Destiny played a clip of me, although he didn't know who I was, and uh, you didn't help uh, my subs or anything. But uh, you know, like the streaming model, where you get a big appearance, you get a bunch of subs, you get monetized. And then you just comment on other people's clips or news and uh, you'll get paid. And, uh, you know, people show you clips in the chat, like Brittany from Politically Provoked on Cozy TV now for uh, a long time. Uh, you know, they're, they're making a living. And, uh, you know, basically all they do is comment on uh, news, other content, and, uh, you know, people in the chat will pay them to play content and, comment on it so uh, you know it's i think i think it's an interesting streaming model although you generally doesn't interest me that much because i you know it's just thinking that much like i mean maybe like news like i read the new york times reading is a better way of ascertaining information and then kind of like well what do you think about all these things happening um i think it generally it's a waste it doesn't matter what people are thinking about these subjects so like i try to avoid it although i think it's it makes me a difficult personality because it's what most people talk about. And I mean, really most people talk like about sports or, uh, you know, so not, not to pick on Elliot or something, but you're thinking like, okay, so typical, okay. You talk about a person. So like, yeah, well, what's going on? So like, Oh, did you hear about Ethan Ralph? And it's like, well, why the hell would I care about Ethan Ralph or, or even like Richard Spencer, you know, like, and, and then, um, and then you think, well, did you hear about the news? Did you hear about you know, Trump or, or, or this thing? And you think, well, why the hell would I even care about Trump? And uh, I guess that's kind of my attitude. So it makes it uh, unfortunate because that's what most people talk about. So I got to be kind of like unpleasant where, uh, where I'm like, that stuff just doesn't interest me. And then you got to pretend like it interests you just to uh, be social or have friends. And uh, But I mean, we can move into the self-help. And then I was thinking like, you because know, I was in yeshivas and Torah and Judaism and like the Torah approach to self-help versus uh, you know, kind of the popular approach to self-help versus uh, academic psychology versus, you know, just understanding why people do things that is not necessarily within the field of clinical psychology of actually trying to help people. So okay, just, now what was the point about your mother and the news that you started off with? Well, that, uh, you know, right when my dad gets home, she wants to uh, tell her, you know, all these things that happen. I think that's pretty normal. And, uh, you know, and saying, God forbid, like, you know, she, her memory's not as strong as it used to be. So she even has to, like, write it down so that, uh, you know, when my dad comes home, she's got, like, a whole page of, uh, you know, just, like, random news things that she wants to tell my dad. And, like, okay, that keeps their relationship together. They have a conversation. And... Uh, but 
you got forbid my parents aren't really into self-improvement and uh you know so as opposed to talking about like self-improvement or something like that they talk about the news and and uh, you know i was put, mentioning in the chat very few people are into self-improvement i would say even like less than one out of ten and even in like even among like chabad judaism where like the whole chabad thing is like you know like tanya is about like you know self-improvement and constantly being in self-improvement like i think the minority of chabadsters are into self-improvement and uh it usually just irritates and bothers people and uh, you know so you have self-improvement usually among people at a low point in their life you know like former uh criminals drug addicts people suffering addiction uh you know low earning where they're just in a rut and like i have to pull myself together i will do anything to make myself better and then they'll get on a path of self-improvement usually just for a brief period of time but you know like that's what i loved about judaism and you know the theoretically like life is continuous self-improvement like even thinking of the dishes I, you know, I remember the rabbis and, and, you know, thank God, even in my youth, like, uh, you know, before I was 20s, like laziness is an enemy to be defeated. If there's something to be done, get up and do it, uh, you know, now, and like now is the best time. And, uh, you know, like the mitzvah, what's the most important mitzvah, the one in front of you, uh, and, uh, you know, the, uh, path of the just, uh, the first thing is alacrity, zeal. And, uh, you know, just basic, if there's something worth doing, now is the best time. And like, I used to say that to people is like, you know, just like repent, start now, um, you know, saying there's no better time than now. And, uh, you know, it's kind of annoying. So like when I was Hasidic, I'd go to rabbis and that's all they talk about. And the people who go to those type rabbis are into that kind of things. But, uh, you know, I think in reality, most people find like that, 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 that annoying and, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if you're like that too, where you're just like, uh, or you find, or you're the opposite. You find it annoying, where you're, where you're just like, you know, stop, you know, stop trying to uh, encourage me, stop trying to, you know, tell me what to do, or I don't want to, you know, be on your self improvement journey. I'm happy with the way I am. Well, uh, nobody likes to to be told what what to do, and so I'm I'm with the majority there. You know, I don't like to be told what to do. You don't like to be told what to do. Virtually. Nobody wants to be told what to do. So if self-improvement is going to have some meaning, it's the individual with his own life. It's not uh, telling everyone else what to do. You're just going to tick people off and you're not going to do any good if you're telling other people what they need to do. Well, that way I would disagree. I'd say like, I think in levels of expertise, like you take instruction and said so like take you like you want to learn something new you just take instruction you find someone who knows that who knows what they're doing and you do what they tell you and uh learning a new skill is constantly just taking instruction it means humbling yourself and saying i don't know and therefore i'm going to someone who knows and i will take instruction and do what they tell me and uh you like as like an engineer technical computer stuff um, it's pretty common that like I'll be listening to somebody for even long periods of time where they're just telling me what to do. And like you like even in employment, I said like no one ever listens to me except for rare like employment situations where I'm explaining something technical. And then in that case is like people might even listen to me for hours because they they you know they're not really listening to me. They just want to understand how to do something. 
and uh, you think that I know how to do it, so we'll listen to me. So I, mean, I don't know if you agree. Like, I mean, you did the Alexander technique, people pay you, and presumably like they just listen to you and take instruction because they think what you're teaching them has value. So just be mostly you giving them instruction and them listening, right? Yeah, but that's when people seek it out. So you are presenting it as nobody wants to be nudged and bothered and hassled and criticized if people seek out instruction or nudging or criticism. That's a whole different thing than it being unsolicited. So most people don't care for you know unsolicited uh, advice. But if you, if you have someone that you respect or someone that you're paying, then, then you're going to listen. But other than that, most people aren't going to welcome criticism. So there's a big difference between those two states. Well, definitely an agreement, but I mean, maybe to push you on that, how, how much of your life is soliciting instruction? Oh, and, not much. <laughs> I don't know, uh, maybe 1%, 2%. I mean, we talked about learning Hebrew or something like, so that was something it was important to you. You solicited instruction. You were even willing to sit with little kids. Um, but uh, I mean, you think that's, a negative thing you think what what would your life be like if 10% of your life was soliciting instruction uh i don't have unlimited stores of energy and you know desire to to change it's it's uh, limited so i i can't imagine 10% well i can only imagine it in a job context so yeah for for a job you know i'd want to solicit say instruction from a supervisor or from a particularly important client but but uh, just willy-nilly uh, soliciting instructions from people as i go through life no but uh, what's what's your attitude to instruction and criticism yeah i would say maybe 10 percent of my life is soliciting instruction even if it's like you mean formal where where i'm just watching explanatory videos where where you know i'm not actually being face-to-face -face instructed um my father constantly is like you know giving me instruction you know he's got a lot of gadgets or, or or skills and you know like explaining to me exactly how it how it should be done and you know like uh you know like his new speaker equipment and like you know have to listen to the instruction and, and follow exactly the rules until i could touch it or uh you'll commit more engineering it's pretty common and then I work with computer software. So like, I'm assuming um, you're just for like, you're streaming your technical stuff. You probably solicited instruction for you know, all of your streaming technical stuff at some point. Yes, I mean, going on YouTube, watching a video or seeking instructions on how to do something is very different than a friend or an acquaintance in your life, you know, badgering you to do something that you don't want to do. Well, if it's like, so if it's self-improvement to say, well, you want to be a better person, right? And some of it's nagging, like, okay, so like I saw my mother and I see her regularly and she's a nagger. And a lot of people in the Jewish community are generally naggers. And sometimes it's positive, like, you're like, okay, like, you know, did you pay your taxes? So like my mom nagged me and nagged me until I paid my taxes. And I paid my taxes pretty early, like this year, my taxes were paid by mid-February um, or, you know, like the dishes or something like, you know, like, well, um, now would be the right time. So, you know, like nag 
until it gets done if you have a roommate or something like that uh, or a job a job type thing where generally things that have a you know, like a deadline a to-do list i try to do them as soon as possible um right away and so i'm not you know, you know yeah there's a level like don't like to be nudged or, or like uh insulted or told what to do but it depends in what context so uh um like and, and i'm not even sure that i have that much of it but in terms of like instruction like yeah i listen to the great courses teaching company every day i basically listen to all their content and uh i constantly listen to how-to stuff and uh you're like okay like i maintain a house i do property management um you know, there's new skills like sometimes you're you're constantly paying people to do things like you like Elliot like car repair, and uh, I'm constantly teaching myself how to do things, and usually I will just solicit pure instruction most of the time just like videos, but if it's uh you know if I pay for it or a friend relationship where the friendship relationship is basically giving and receiving instruction, even in terms of like our relationship if you said like that where like uh you know if you have something useful you'll give me instruction i will listen i have something useful i will give you instruction and you will listen and uh i mean that's actually the kind of friendships i prefer uh but but i'm kind of like a self-improvement uh addict like that yeah i i used to be a self-improvement uh, addict but I, I found it just didn't really work didn't get down to the nuts and bolts of things. It didn't get down to core character transformation. One has to, in, in my experience, transcend the self and, and move into a different realm, the, the spiritual realm that's no longer about the self, but it's about transcending the self. So I'm just curious, do you view your problems as your primary problems? Or my perspective is my problems are simply symptoms of much deeper, more painful problems that I don't want to look at. So do you think that you have a good handle on your problems or are you like me? Do you think your problems are simply symbols and symptoms of much deeper issues that you don't want to look at? Well, I mean, this is the main thing, like hopefully we'll talk about, but just to close the chapter when it's saying like personality refinement is different than technical instruction or like, you know, like health or, or, or something that is more, uh, you know, not esoteric. So most of the instruction I receive is technical. Like I know how to operate hundreds of different computer programs or, uh, you know, tools or devices or understanding, you know, chemical or scientific processes. So most of the instruction I receive is technical. So like if we're switching to, you know, referring self-improvement, you're talking about the self personality refinement. Yeah, I don't really receive any instruction in that. Like, I, you know, I listen to videos, like, you know, we talk, I listen to the stuff you said, I read books on that, but no, I don't really receive any instruction on personality refinement. I was referring almost all to technical instruction, uh, your personal know-how and, uh, and, you know, so I don't know if you had a point or, or you know, to, differentiate those two things from personality refinement becoming a better person the self as opposed to uh you know technical know-how well i've said nothing on the show about seeking out technical know-how i just take that for granted the entire point of this show and many of my other shows is the 
the transcending of the self or the development of, of character. It's not about, obviously, if you need technical know-how, you know, you go out and get it. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Okay, well, okay. When I was saying I, like 10% of my life is receiving instruction, you're probably, the majority of that is technical, not, uh, um, so like I do listen to, I've, I almost listen to no self-help. Most of the stuff I listen to is academic. And uh, I find self-help stuff very unuseful because self-improvement is not necessarily technical. It's not a, it's not a real science. Uh, the subject interests me and uh, you know, from any perspective, but uh, you know, in the terms of, uh, I, I would say it's it's different than you know, technical know-how where instruction is very uh, useful. And, and, and as someone who teaches people how to do things, most people just can't sit and listen. So, you know, like I spent years and you probably, I think we've talked about this where uh, I taught people how to operate computer equipment. And I was like, well, if you just shut up and listen and do what I say, um, I'll teach you in like 10 minutes. But if you, you know, whatever, it could take 10 hours. And if you're getting paid or something, it might take 10 hours like that. You know, so like, you know, I remember Courage of Entropy, like Lowell, Lowell Gallen, we tried to get him, uh, you know, like Charles Moskowitz, he still can't get his tech right. And because he really just, to some extent, can't shut up and listen to, uh, you know, just like do this, then do this, then do this, and then do that. And if this happens, do this or something like that. So, I mean, m maybe you're more prone to receiving technical instruction or if you agree with my point with a lot of these things. Like if you just shut up and listen, it'll take a few minutes. If you don't shut up and listen, it'll take as long as it takes for you to shut up and listen. Yeah, I have no interest in technical instruction that, as far as this show or past shows. I never talk about that topic. I take it for granted that when it comes to technical things, you should get instructed. But that's not the topic of this stream. So once again, I'll pose my question to you. So do, do you view your problems as your primary problems or do you view your problems as primarily symptoms of more painful things that you don't want to look at? Um. Well, usually like motivation. So if you get back like, okay, like marijuana or something like that. And so you know, it's like, you got to stop smoking marijuana. It's bad for you. Um, you know, you want to pull yourself together. Um, you'll feel like, like, I mean, basically like you've harped on me. I mean, not like harping in a way that was annoying, but uh, almost every time we've talked for the whole time we've met, like you've mentioned, uh, you know, marijuana and, you know, presumably from your perspective, you're just like, dude, like, why you why are you smoking marijuana? You got to kick that. It's not good for you. Um, and in that respect, like, okay, I accepted that if it, if it got annoying um, and, and I can't stop it. So, you know, like my primary problems, if you mean like internal, um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I agree with this, you know, how you're going to phrase it. Like, what does it mean to have an internal problem? What does it mean to, fix it. You know, it's like, if I have trauma, I have issues, I have um, an identity and my problem is my identity and my identity can't be changed. And so my identity is problematic and causes me unsuccessful relations with other people. And that causes me depression. Therefore, I smoke marijuana in the sense, well, you're saying like, well, the problem is you. The problem is like, you know, you're a bad person. And uh, you either got to change and become a new person or, uh, you know, God forbid, I don't know, man, how, how are you looking at this? How are you phrasing it in that sense? Okay, so I'll just, uh, I'll just 
talk uh, about myself. And so uh, up until about, uh, I think, 2016, I never earned over $45,000 in a year. Like I had a lifetime of under-earning, under-achieving, and self-sabotaging. And I've been carrying over $50,000 in credit card debt for approximately six years at, at that point. And so my under-earning was not the problem. My under-earning was a symptom of a much deeper problem, and that is my tendency to be a selfish, self-centered person who is not really interested in being of much service to anybody. So when I recognized that my under-earning was just a symptom of a very you know, selfish, self-centered life, I was willing to go through the pain of reconstructing myself from, from the inside so that I started you know, paying more attention to other people and to what they need. And as I went through that, that reconstruction of myself, I then became a better employee and I became more prosperous and I s started coming out of the, the cave with some of my talents and I started making more money. But the, the money and the earning and the paying off the credit card debt, that was just a symptom of what was a much deeper problem and the deeper problem being I was incredibly selfish. So another example, I'm, I've never had a romantic relationship for longer than a year. So there's the problem, but the problem is just a symbol of a deeper problem with how I relate to myself and to other people. So my, my selfishness and my desire to, you know, say, escape the humdrum nature of my reality into you know, intense romantic and sexual interludes has not predisposed me, has not placed me in, in a position to sustain relationships. So the lack of relationships is just a symptom and a symbol of a much deeper problem, the much deeper problem being that I have wanted to escape reality, you know, escape from my life and get lost in you know, very exciting, erotic and romantic adventures. So those are two examples of symptoms of problems symbols of problems, but the real problem was something much, much deeper that I didn't want to look at, and that was a reordering of my soul, so to speak. So anything you want to comment on? Yeah, thanks for saying it like that, because I, mean, I, I guess that's where I'm differentiating from Berger. If you put it in the harsh terms, like well, the problem is I'm a bad person. The problem is that I'm selfish. You know, like, well, the true self, like, you know, when I accurately looked in the mirror, and I saw I'm a bad person. And, you know, the level to say that is my true self. And but I, I could change. I want to change. I want to be a good person. I'm willing to do the hard work to change so that I'm not this bad person that I currently am. And it's very difficult. So so to say, okay, I'm gonna smoke weed because you know, God forbid, I'm a horrible person and I don't think I could change. So I'm just going to smoke weed to kill the pain um, versus, uh, you know, this recognition, God forbid, that I have these problems, but I see a path forward to changing. I'm, I'm not sure if you, I mean, the burger was mentioning these things like the true self and the false self. And, you know, theologically, like, you know, said like the tiny of the Judaic, you would say, well, of course, like, you know, there's the battle between the body and the soul and the natural, uh, you know, human is an animal ignorance is the natural condition so to recognize that uh, you know i'm di i'm no different than any other beast 
and the only thing that's going to make me different from being uh, the natural beast that I am is character refinement and therefore I'm, I, I'm constantly trying to refine my character and from the Judeo perspective to say that there's an ideal behavior pattern you know like the halakha the proper character the proper character trait and then there's the natural tendency and the goal of character refinement is not the true self because the true self is actually the selfish horrible animal and so the goal is to fight that selfish horrible animal and align yourself with proper behavior and uh you know, that that was my understanding of like the Musser school the judaic uh Musser school perspective on on that you know there's this battle against the true self which is negative and uh trying to align ourselves with proper behavior and that, that'd be more theological if you're talking in terms of uh your practical in uh, you know terms of unleashing your earning potential or uh, relations and actually I, I want to ask you you know, maybe also move the direction towards that like the difference between your Judaic Musser and um, self-help, uh, you know, which... Uh... Well, both of them were absolutely useless for me. Judaic Musser and self-help, absolutely useless for me in overcoming my underowning. I needed a fundamental reordering of myself on a spiritual level, on a character level. Uh, I needed the transformation that I've only experienced in working the 12 steps. So self-help and Judaic uh, teachings were completely useless for me in uh, overcoming my, you know, habitual habits of selfishness and uh, self-aggrandizement. So you talked about, you know, using Judaic Musa. Uh, how's that worked out for you? I think it worked out pretty good. You know, I think like relatively, um, I did this stuff in my early 20s, my late teens. And uh, like we were talking yesterday, like, you know, I say Krishma Shalmita, I repent every night. Uh, I almost never, uh, you know, carry on anger or grudges towards other people. I almost always blame my failings on myself. Um, in in generally, I recognize faults in myself, and will, within your realistic goals, try to uh, change those. And you know, like I got that from. Musser and and you know I had to be in Israel outside, uh you, you know, like where I was you know in yeshiva I was in Jerusalem, you know there there to like you know so to say, you know the Christian terminology be born again, to become a new person and then I went to Brooklyn and you know became a Hasidic Jew, which uh, you know to some extent was a false identity I became Duvid, uh because you know that allowed me you know, to be like Duvid, the Hasidic Jew who you know, believes in all this mysticism things and works on myself. And and I did, uh, uh, you know, extremities. Like, you know, I slept on benches. I gave away all my money. Uh, I, you know, I recognized uh, young, like, I, you know, I remember thinking very clearly that like, I'm like, like you were saying, I'm, I'm an extremely selfish, not nice person, uh, maybe even on the negative side in my youth to having enjoyment and seeing the pain of others to try to become a good person and uh you know under the guise of extremist hasidic rabbis and rabbis i did extreme things to try to become a good person and uh and, and i think it it worked to a relatively good extent i'm very charitable i'm very careful not to hurt other people's feelings even though like you know generally i was a pretty nasty kid and where, where do you get the power to do the things that you need to do but that you don't want to do 
Um, I think it has to be fear of God. And, you know, it's an important principle, also like the religious aspect. Uh, I think the some people included like the six uh, duties of the heart, the six mitzvahs that are consonant upon your heart. And one of them be like,